Hello and welcome to another episode of the Psychology in Mind podcast. In each show we take a question from the field of psychology and discuss it. In today's show, is psychology unethical? We're going to take a look at the history of psychology and examine some of the abuses and studies which occurred, which could not occur today, or in some cases continue to occur, and ask, you know, how, do the, how does psychology stand as a discipline? Has it committed more wrongs than rights? Sometimes research that would never be allowed today helped bring about changes, not just in psychology, but in our treatment of children, of vulnerable groups, of the mentally ill, and of course of gay people. Where do we draw the line between necessary explorations of human behaviour and abuse? Is psychology too ethical, or at least too cautious in its adherence to ethical principles today? So, for example, YouTube social experiments and Darren Brown can explore real-world behaviour, whereas psychologists will be more constrained by ethics boards. Is it overly utilitarian to see if there's a cost-benefit analysis in terms of how unpleasant a study is compared to how much society, or perhaps even the participants themselves, stand to benefit? Can we balance the benefits to society with the cost to individuals? Ironically, the lessons of some of the experiments we're going to discuss, maybe the society as a whole, cannot be ethical if individuals are sacrificed. So we're going to talk about a bunch of historic um, experiments, many of which we studied, obviously, in our undergrad. You do several history of psychology and interest to psychology courses um, as an undergraduate student, many of which cross the same material, and they tend to be divided by discipline, so behaviorism, um, cognitive psychology, and historically. But they all tend to include, as sort of some of the flavor text, some of the most surprising, shocking, and of course, unethical experiments. And one of these is the Little Albert conditioning experiment. Yes, I mean, this was coming from a behaviorist paradigm within psychology that was quite predominant through the early 20th century, particularly in the US in, in psychology. And what, so what was the, behaviorism overall? What, what did behaviorists believe and what did they do to, in their studies? Yeah, well, I suppose, that, well, at the risk of kind of oversimplifying a bit, there was a strong focus on kind of overt behavior that would be observable. So uh, within um, empirical psychology at that time, uh, behaviorism kind of aimed uh, to take the focus less on, say, feelings or kind of thoughts that aren't kind of uh, observable in a laboratory context and to look more at uh, observable behaviours. So, uh, for example, one of the kind of major uh, techniques within behaviourism would be trying to, to match uh, what you might call an unconditioned stimulus, so something that's kind of naturally kind of aversive or pleasant uh, to a conditioned stimulus, so something that doesn't in itself provoke a particular kind of reaction. So it was, it was examining learning, really, and yes. the processes underlying learning. And I guess the behaviourists, would it be safe to say that they, they believed that almost every aspect of human behaviour was a learned response, that they were very much against any idea of instinct or inherited um, behaviours or, or, or motivations? Yeah, so I suppose this it kind of comes kind of to the, the nature-nurture debate, which is kind of a big uh, uh, debate that we kind of would often go through kind of in the the psychology psychological kind of literature in, in general but uh yeah so i mean there was there was kind of more of a focus of kind of learned behavior that um there was behaviorism tended to emphasize uh sort of instinct as, as you say yourself yeah so I, th I think there's a famous quote from so the two big behaviorist icons are watson who did this experiment and uh, bf skinner yes and i think skinner has this quote about the more we learn about an animal instinct disappears and learning replaces it really most of what we thought of as instinct was a misunderstanding of learning. It's all been rubbished since. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, Skinner, I mean, to be fair to Skinner, he did try to grapple with kind of uh, the um, things like kind of creative thinking and so forth and try to do it within a behaviorist paradigm. I suppose nowadays the nature-nurture debate would be 
taking one or the other side would be seen as somewhat of a false dichotomy. Really. Right, so. right. That that has now sort of the, the line in psychology is that all behaviour is learned and innate. And by what, what they mean by that is that even if something is totally learned, the mechanism by which we learn it is innate from the neurochemistry of the learning itself, long-term potentiation to the desire and the capacity to learn a certain kind of thing. So we don't learn everything. We can't learn everything with equal ease. Even the even the methodologies by which we learn modeling and in this case conditioning are innate. They're things that, that are evolved into us and they're genetically passed on. So there's you can't divide that line ever really. And even something like the shape of the, the body is affected by the intrauterine environment. So sure, the body is 100% genetically determined, but whether or not you will grow um, healthy arms and legs requires a healthy intrauterine environment and the, the size of your body, the amount of testosterone and um, uh, androgens and estrogens is all determined by the intrauterine environment and epigenetics. So even that kind of stuff can change between uh, people based on stuff other than genes. And of course, Gareth and myself both take uh, testosterone on a regular basis. I'm, not, I'm on 100 milligrams of tea every two hours. Inje- <laughs> I inject it straight into the, you know where? Yeah, buddy. But uh, getting back to uh, little Albert, uh, so yeah, uh, it was very much kind of rooted in the the behaviorist uh, paradigm. So essentially, what they were doing here was it was getting little Albert to this this kid to have a conditioned response. They would kind of present him, say, with with uh, a rabbit, and then make an extremely loud noise to so say bang a metal bar behind him. So this would obviously provoke a fear response in little Albert. And it was trying to kind of link this conditioned stimulus, the rabbit, to the unconditioned stimulus, which was the the fear that they were uh, inducing a little Albert, making loud noises behind him. I think it's worth noting that, I mean, this sounds terrible, obviously. You're, you're literally taking a baby, showing it a lovely rabbit and making a horrible noise. But the behaviorists viewed emotion as epiphenomenal. So to, to a lot of behaviorists, certainly early behaviorists, emotion either didn't exist at all, or they had no impact at all. So so making a child afraid, there's nothing wrong with it because emotions are sort of just a side effect. It's all behavior. They kind of thought that there was no ghost in the machine, that that things like our ideas don't really exist or have no real impact on behavior. That's high, kind of hard to believe, but people really thought that up until the 1960s even when, when the cognitive revolution happened in psychology. So the, in that context, it's much more understandable what they were doing. Like it, seems, it seems beastly. Yeah. I mean, the way I kind of described uh, behaviorism was quite rooted in empirical behaviorism but as, as you kind of note there is a stronger version of behaviorism that is trying to talk fundamentally about psychology and the nature thereof to, to this day it persists i mean when the behaviorists lost their position in psychology they they didn't just give up there there is a uh, there is a form of behaviorism which continues to exist and they don't call themselves psychologists i think they call themselves behaviorologists or behavioral scientists or something weird like that and it's one of these kind of fringe disciplines where they just just exclusively focus on conditioning to to the the exclusion of all else and view psychology as having taken a wrong turn you know but it's, it's also worth noting that this kind of research comes out of a re- everything is a rejection in, in any discipline and it comes out of a rejection of uh, specifically of freudianism and psychoanalysis so before the 1920s for several decades psychology had been dominated you know uh, you have some very early psychologists in the in the 18th uh, late 1800s uh, Wilhelm Wundt and William James doing very modern kinds of research in some ways. Uh, Wilhelm Wundt was more introspectionist, but William James did experimental research and had lots of really interesting neuro- neurological ideas. But then for a long time, you get the, the Freudians kind of taking over. And this isn't to dismiss it as a form of psychotherapy, but as a way of understanding human behavior, psychoanalysis leaves a lot to be desired. It's very difficult to do experiments, for example. But as you say, I mean, the ethical, the ethical problems posed by by a study like what they were doing with Little Albert are, are pretty obvious. Like, I mean, the um, I mean, one of the key cornerstones of uh, psychological research is is consent. Now, obviously, with a, 
a baby that's kind of complexity around that in terms of asking parents if, if they're okay with that and then I mean really consent is uh, it should typically be thought of not just signing a form and then away you go but something that's kind of negotiated on, on an ongoing basis and typically typically research participants do have the option to, to end a study early if they wish which is probably something we'll touch on again with Milgram's kind of stuff as well and that's going to be a repeating theme in a lot of things that we look at there was either deception used or that consent wasn't properly given it's funny that the psychological discourse around consent is now the same language that we use to talk about sexuality and that's no coincidence ideas about uh, negotiated consent and continual consent come very clearly from psychology whether they're appropriate for sexuality or not is a different discussion but so so those that kind of language is something that we apply now to in today's experiments but at the, this time in the 1920s you still had your patriarchal scientist would come in and they would they were the voice of god effectively they, they decided what happened in a given experiment to a given participant and generally a lot of experiments were done historically on people who we would now see as not being able to give consent because they were uh, emotionally cognitively mentally impaired in some way either they were children they were mentally handicapped or mentally ill they were institutionalized or they were you know women who were impoverished mm, yeah and I, again like i suppose the um there always has to be consideration for for the potential for harm to to the the participant and in a case like you know with little albert with kind of potential of kind of lasting harm kind of uh, following the the experiment that's I don't think that'll be <laughs> tolerated. Kind of. Yeah, which is which is why consent itself is not enough. I mean, you can a parent could consent to have their child, you know, oh no, I'd no problem, do whatever you want. It doesn't mean it's in the child's best interest. So, so only consent, or even from the person themselves, um, is not is not sufficient. If if you know harm will result in later life, you might wonder what happened to little Albert, this guy who was this little kid who um, we didn't actually mention. He was a, he was a small infant at the time, like a pre linguistic child, toddler. And uh, he, he was conditioned to fear, successfully conditioned to fear this rabbit. Um, it's not really known what happened to him because he was anonymized. So his name wasn't Albert. And there are a couple of different theories. One theory is that he um, he was just an ordinary man who grew up to have a fear of dogs, which, you know, not great for him, but not the worst outcome. And the, But there's another uh, strain of um, research which suggests that he was a developmentally disabled child. So not only was he being abused, but um, he was already sort of an especially vulnerable uh, and makes the research useless because his reactions to anything would have been um, not generalizable to the general population. Uh, either way, a shameful moment for little Albert and for psychology. Okay, which brings us to our second experiment. This is the famous Milgram experiments, the Milgram obedience studies uh, done in the early 60s. Uh, Stanley Milgram began the research just as Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi war criminal um, who had been tracked down, was being put on trial. And I guess his research was partly inspired by the obedience that the Nazis found um, not only in the army and in um, uh, senior figures like Eichmann, but in the German population overall. And Milgram wondered what it was that allowed people, ordinary people, to do very unethical things. And he wanted to see what those factors were, whether he could manipulate them. People who took part in this study were uh, told when they were coming in to take part that this was going to be more a study kind of on cognition or learning. I suppose from the beginning there was uh, deception, although it's kind of understandable when you hear about the, the main content of, of the study. People were brought into this setup whereby they would have to, to administer this, this cognitive test to what they were told was somebody else who was just taking part in the study, but who was in fact a confederate or someone who was working with the experimenter. 
And the people who were really taking part uh, were told that uh, if the person made a mistake, they'd have to give, administer an electric shock. So, uh, so kind of a similar kind of principle looking at, you know, if, if you can, uh, learning theory and if kind of punishment, you know, can, can have an impact uh, upon learning. But so, so the, the fake experiment yes, was, yes, was an old fashioned learning experiment, kind of like the little Albert study. Yeah, yeah, kind of sim- similar in many ways. But really what Milgram was interested in was, uh, as you say yourself, the extent to which people could be kind of nip- um, manipulated or kind of pushed into obeying orders, even if it went against, I suppose, their own sense of ethics. The device that they were using was marked at different intensities of, of uh, electric shock, which went from mild up to, to quite severe. And the the Confederates would have a script whereby they, they would start to kind of complain and saying that they, they couldn't continue. I think at one point they mentioned that they had a heart condition and, and would start kind of like, you know, seriously kind of saying, I, I can't handle this anymore and so forth. Um, and so then another person who was working with Milgram was telling the the the, the real research participant, they were giving them verbal prompts saying, you know, you must continue, even if the person was saying, you know, this, this doesn't seem right. You know, I don't think I can administer this high electric shock. It seems dangerous or what have you. It was it was quite interesting because I, I believe at the time they b- before the study was run, they a number of um, people interested in the area made estimates of, of how compliant people would be with this and um, they generally tend to underestimate just how compliant people could be in terms of actually administering these very high electric shocks well what they thought were very high electric shocks to this person who as far as they knew was experiencing severe pain it's a study that's really kind of tapped into the the zeitgeist i'm sure a lot of listeners will have heard of it yeah and you can find videos of it online because milgram actually videoed a lot of these experiments so that there's footage that you can go and watch on youtube um, i mean it's it's been very influential in terms of i suppose debates around you know humanity the banality of evil like or the um the extent to which people can can be manipulated some sometimes not that somewhat easily like it, by authority figures into committing um serious damage to their to their fellow humans something we didn't actually mention is the level of obedience that milgram actually found in his participants which is about 67 percent of people were willing to continue to shock someone that they thought was really receiving a shock um to the point where they stopped responding and might have even died so it said on the machine that they were looking at that the buttons they were hissing they, they had listed different voltages and uh, the highest one was 300 volts and it had XXX marked underneath it. So that it went sort of mild, severe, extremely severe and XXX, which, you know, you could interpret yourself. You would assume it went maybe lethal. And 67% of people in the original experiment went all the way to to killing someone effectively, to continuing to. The only response that they were getting from the experimenter was the experiment must continue. They would say, I don't want to or whatever. And the experimenter would say, the experiment must continue. Please proceed with the experiment. Similar banal things. So there was no force applied to them. They weren't threatened mm, or anything yeah. like that. And what I hadn't realized when we went to research this, um, I looked into it in more detail. And this is actually one of a series of experiments. So he continued to modify the parameters of the experiment. which was actually really kind of a very good piece of research. He, he didn't just say, okay, people are obedient. He said, well, how can I modify the level of obedience? And he discovered some really interesting things. So if the experimenter was just another person off the street who didn't appear to be a scientist, not an official, um, experimental obedience to the point of death or whatever, uh, dropped to about 20%. So they had a massive decline. That's a, like a 300% decline in obedience just based on the fact that they weren't responding to an expert or a, an authority figure. So the major, it turns out that the major thing in this kind of obedience is authority. And it's kind of the thing people might say, well, perhaps it'd be difficult to replicate today because perhaps authority figures might not carry as much weight or people might not feel as inclined to 
go along with an authority figure. Well, it's funny you should say that because it has been replicated today. So obviously you couldn't do this kind of research legally or ethically today. But as we all know, there's quote unquote social experiments on YouTube and on TV. And in 2007, um, they don't face the same ethical rigor. Um, A series of these experiments were replicated um, for ABC television when a Santa Clara psychologist, Jerry Berger, in a show that was sort of an analysis of what had gone wrong, quote unquote, in Abu Ghraib um, prison in Iraq, replicated the experiments and they found exactly the same uh, level of obedience in the high 60% for shocking up to the point of death. Actually, I think in the experiment that they replicated, they didn't go the whole way to death, but they went, they found the same level of obedience as the shocks rose and they assumed that it would continue to to murder or to the unconsciousness of the Confederate. So we, you know, we haven't changed that much. Um, he Milgram also found that the, you know he could manipulate um, the amount of obedience by changing other parameters. So, for example, if the experimenter was still a scientist but they were only giving instructions over uh, a speaker or over the phone, again, obedience was only twenty percent. If the person instructed to shock had a subordinate that they could also instruct so in other words if they gave the member of the public who was being experimented on their own puppet to pass the order on to the obedience rose to 92 percent i think that's really fascinating because Mm. in in the real world you're rarely pulling the trigger you know you're you're rarely ushering people into the gas chamber or whatever it is but when it comes to a, a major violation of ethics it tends to be that you're a cog in the wheel of the of the violation occurring. And it, this is kind of replicating that circumstance. And 97%, sorry, 92% of people were willing to be that cog. They were willing to pass on a terrible order. Um, you know, and th- this this population of testes, this was men between the ages of 20 and 50 because basically wanted to replicate what an army, like the age range of an army would be. Ordinary people between 20 and 50 who were men. Um, I'm not sure what the figures of obedience would be or were if they did the, the, these tests on, uh, on say, women or older men or younger people. Presumably they'd be lower, but who's, who's to say? What's important about all of this is what it says about the ethics of experiment, right? These experiments have been duplicated numerous times. People argue about their relevance. There's some uh, analysis of whether why people were obeying, what, what things they're obeying. But broadly, no one has argued about the result and as i say it's been replicated it's a very firm and for a study done in the 60s the early 60s at that that's non-existent basically there's almost no research done back then that was any use at all this is a very well designed study the result has held firm it showed something important about human obedience but today we couldn't do it do you want to actually andrew do you want to talk about the reasons why you couldn't do it yeah I, I suppose i mentioned at the beginning about uh, deception now deception is something that does uh, that is still done in psychological research and i think for for a study like this it's pretty obvious why some degree of deception was necessary so i think uh, that aspect as long as it can be you can give good justification for it should not be kind of uh, exclusionary uh, or wouldn't stop a study from happening um th- i suppose the real I suppose a key issue here is kind of the potential for kind of lasting psychological damage in people from having realised that they would go to these kind of lengths to administer this kind of shock to someone else. Um, I mean, as I, as I was saying in the preamble, like a lot of, say, prior to the study being conducted, a lot of people who, who had kind of thought a lot about psychology had said that the rates of compliance would be considerably lower. So you can imagine an average Joe kind of coming in to do, do this study if you had asked them before they went in, would you, you know, kill someone just because some guy in a lab coat told you to do, they'd probably say no. But then when they were actually put in that context, um, many of them did. And so the the potential psychological fallout that this could have for someone is uh, is understandably very heavy, uh, could carry kind of long-term implications and so forth. So, I mean, 
again, the potential for lasting harm is something that's that's obviously of, of, of great concern to to um, the ethics of conducting these kind of studies. And it's worth noting that Milgram reported that 83% of people who did the study um, on being debriefed were happy that they'd done it. And they reported that even though they were very distressed and they were distressed, you can see it in the videos. And he reported on this, that they sweated, that they were upset, that they, that they really became very stressed in the process of this. They weren't just obeying like no problem they were getting they were objecting and they were becoming mm. really uncomfortable but 83 percent said that they were okay with it that they learned from it having said that researchers have gone back and looked at milgram's experiments and what they found is that they weren't always done again because it was the 60s with the greatest rigor so there's some evidence that not all participants were debriefed until months later so people might they did the experiment they went home they were traumatized and maybe they got a letter in the post saying oh by the way that was story you didn't electrocute anyone you know and and that's that's incre- obviously incredibly unethical um which means that that we really don't know so much about the effect especially the long-term effect on the people who did this even if we did in today's environment, I'm assuming we wouldn't be allowed to do a study like this anyway, just because of the stress. I, I don't think you would. I don't think you would. I mean, as you say yourself, I mean, you can you can see how a study like this would have the potential to improve improve many people's lives because they might realise it might make them less conformist or might make them you know a more independent person because they realised by realising how easily we can, we can be manipulated, they might going forward in their life sort of um, be less uh, susceptible to pressure and so forth. I think considering the ethics of these kind of studies, if there's the potential to cause lasting harm, once you go past a certain level of lasting harm towards people, I, I think it's really questionable whether a study would be would be allowed, even if some other people do benefit from it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So even if like a small percentage of people got PTSD or something, that would be enough to say, no, you can't do the study. In general, yeah, I would say, yeah. Which brings us to the big question that we're asking in this episode is, you know, was this study justified? Is psychology wrong today in being so averse to sacrificing the individual for the collective good like was there was there was there a, a social good that came from milgram's experiments uh, in our in our understanding of how people operate or let's say in how we prevent ethical violations in business or in in politics or something that 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 justifies it i think it's pretty pretty clear there was some kind of benefit in terms of understanding ourselves but then i suppose the question is whether yeah to what extent we're willing to, to sacrifice a few uh, individuals who, who took part in the study in practice you wouldn't uh, I think once you go past a certain you cross a certain line I, I think you, you kind of have to say no to, to kind of exposing individuals towards it now it probably it touches on kind of deeper philosophical issues about you know utilitarian approaches to ethics there's another point I guess which you might call the desk drawer problem for ethics and there's a, there's a famous uh, problem in psychology which is that it's very difficult to publish negative results actually well this is an interesting study because I don't know if there is a negative result for this whatever people do it's a result but if he hadn't been able to find a result he, he couldn't have published the study and what it means is that a lot of times people will try and replicate a study or they'll try and demonstrate something and in trying to do so they've demonstrated that that thing that they're studying wasn't real but then they can't publish that negative finding because you can always say well maybe it's not real or maybe you just didn't do your research well maybe you there was a confound maybe your stats were broken maybe you just didn't do the experiment well maybe you recruited the wrong kind of people so it's very difficult to publish a negative study so there's an equivalent for ethics which is that yeah okay we can look at milgram and we can say you know this is an objective piece of knowledge about human beings at least human beings in america in or in the western world that's still true today and it's important to know but there were presumably lots of other studies that were just as unethical which didn't teach us anything 
And that's the kind of the desk drawer problem of ethics in that, sure, we could say that it's ethical in theory, even if we're, as from a utilitarian point of view, you could say that maybe psychology is too ethical. We should allow studies like this. But for every study like this, how many studies were just like this, left people traumatized and we'll look at some of the later things that happened and had no benefit at all. Okay, so this brings us to the, the famous Philip Zimbardo Stanford Prison Experiment. Andrew, what was the Stanford Prison Experiment? So essentially this was uh, yeah, a study by Zimbardo where they recruited, again, I think it was a group of, of young men and they, they randomly, they built, essentially, I think it was essentially um, below the, the university where it was conducted, they had this kind of prison uh, environment in, in the basement and they randomly assigned uh, participants to either be prisoners or guards. Um and essentially what they found was that they, um, w- within that context, that the those who were assigned to the role of guards began behaving in an increasingly abusive and bullying manner towards the prisoners uh, to such an extent that they had to stop the, the experiment uh, early um, but because they felt too much damage was uh, happening to these, uh, these uh, prisoners and in scare quotes, the people who had been assigned to this, this role of prisoner. With this study, again, I mean, it, it kind of prompts uh, similar questions or makes a similar demonstration of this idea that if people are placed within a certain uh, social role, that they begin, can begin to behave in a certain manner that can be extremely damaging to, to other people. So touching on similar kind of themes that you, that you see in uh, within the Milgram study, um, it has kind of been criticised as well in terms of its method. Zimbardo him, himself, for example, I think was kind of uh, interacting with some of the, the guards I believe as well trying to kind of egg them on This is another classic piece of the loose shaggy haired era of psychology where, <laughs> where the, the experimenter would feel perfectly justified sleeping with a, a, an experimentee or throwing the throwing the boot in and, and encouraging the results to go the direction that they wanted them to Yeah, not that Zimbardo would do that uh, today obviously He remains actually as a very eminent psychologist and he's written um, several books about the experiment and it's been turned into a film multiple times there's a, I think a German film called Experiment Das Experiment, das Experiment and there's a I think a TV series as well, playing on the themes of it, because it does, it, it connects to our cultural mythos about the compliant man, the the, the person as a, a, a vessel of the state, as, as a something, an instrument, someone that can be turned into the uniform. And a big part of this experiment was giving uniforms. So the prisoners had a cliched prison outfit and the guards had a military style outfit. And more generally, I suppose, about kind of situationisms, this idea that with implications for, for personality. So we might think of ourselves as people with stable traits who will behave, you know, the way we behave as individuals, regardless of the situation. Whereas this was suggesting that, um, you know, our kind of local social environment is much bigger, uh, impact, has a much bigger impact on our behaviour. And it's worth uh, taking a moment to, to talk about that. I, um, broadly speaking, situationism has been highly evidenced as a paradigm for thinking about human behaviour, whereas personality research hasn't. So while it, uh, you'll find very consistent results if you take a, a proper personality test, the big five trait theory is the big one. So openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, anxiety and neuroticism. Agreeableness. Re- yeah, agreeableness, sorry. I always say anxiety. Uh, neuroticism would cover anxiety. Um, those results don't change very much over the life course or at least they change in predictable and measurable ways but those traits are not very predictive of anything whereas if you add in a situational component um, there's a lot of consistency and uh, I think it was Albert Bandura who had the a situational trait theory where he looked in in cognitive behavioral terms at how people like let's say in a school environment how you'll behave in an authority environment how you'll behave and 
if you if you measure that those behaviors don't change a lot so you, you learn a, a lot more about how people behave by looking at how they behave in a specific situation and that tends to be quite constant for an individual the trouble is that that kind of thing is very difficult to measure in pen and paper and it's one of those methodological things that dogs something like psychology where we talked in the first episode about whether psychology measures things that are real or things that are easy to measure and it's very obvious to say that something that is only true behaviorally is more difficult to measure and in this era especially now where uh, evolutionary psychology which is more observational and ecologically valid it's becoming kind of less uh, acceptable to do um, a lot of experiments remain uh, computer-based um, this kind of paper-based and there's a there's a limit to what you can measure uh, certainly about behavior uh, in the real world with those kind of experiments mm. Which, which is another, a lot of the reason that those experiments are constrained like that is expense, but a lot of the reason is also ethics. And another uh, another way in which kind of, I suppose, human psychology is modeled is through uh, animal research as well, which I suppose brings us on to the, um, the Harlow uh, attachment uh, studies. So this is a series of experiments that were done beginning in the 1930s. And again, it's one of those things you learn about it in psychology class. And I kind of thought the classic Harlow experiment, but actually there was a whole series where he tried different things. And Harlow was a really interesting character. Um, he had uh, this aversion to clinical terminology and it, as we'll see it, it tied very much thematically into his research so what he was looking at was what became um, known as attachment so you might have heard of attachment theory which relates to in the early years of your life as a human how you attach to your primary caregivers your mother or your father usually how that predicts behavior in later life so if you have various kinds of disruption or various kinds of care how it will predict your ability to form relationships and how you'll succeed in work and so on in later life at the time harlow was working in the 1930s it was thought that something like affection or physical comfort grooming kissing hugging holding all the things that we do with a small child were totally unnecessary and irrelevant they were still coming from this behavioral model that we mentioned earlier so for example that meant that in the modern clinical well-run institution for uh, neglected or adopted children like children who were given up for adoption or, or disabled children say they would not be touched they would be left in what we would now think of as something like a Romanian orphanage in the 1990s under Ceausescu, you know, the famous uh, dictator of Romania, where, where orphans were left and neglected. This is the was standard practice. Let's say your child went into hospital, they would keep the child away from the parents because, of course, effect, infection, you don't want to spread disease, and they would not touch them. They would never be held or picked up. So Harlow was experimenting in monkeys. His most famous experiment is the wire cloth mother experiment. Do you want to outline what that was? So what this involved was having uh, two model mothers. So he had these little um, monkeys, I think they were like macaw monkeys or something that he was working on. Oh, sorry, Reese monkeys, like small, um, cute uh, furry monkeys. And he would give them um, a, their primary caregiver. They would be born and he would put them in a cage. And one model mother would uh, dispense milk and one, but was a, like a wire cage, an uncomfortable wire cage figurine. The other gave nothing to the child so it didn't give them heat or warmth or anything but it was a furry comfortable uh, uh creature in other words it resembled the um the mother that they would have had physically and what he found was that the uh, the monkeys would go and they would cling on to this cloth mother as it was called um so they got something from something that in objective terms was not giving them anything they weren't getting food or care from it but they were getting essentially what uh, harlow called love and it's worth noting that we say attachment today, but Harlow's initial address to the APA where he announced this research was, was called that on the nature of love. And he profoundly objected to the use of the term attachment. He considered it love. 
which is a really I love when you go back and you look at these psychological studies they weren't you know being it's not some sort of uh, teak professor <laughs> with with no bones and skin they were being carried out by real people and this guy had a, a real belief and interest in love in people and he thought it was important and we always I mean like I think in you know in your typical psychology degree you would always talk about attachment and it's still very much focused on attachment so like today you'd have the adult attachment interview for example and it's kind of segregating people into whether they were kind of securely attached which is kind of like the rhesus monkey that had the, the whatever the the furry uh, uh, thing to, to cuddle or, <laughs> or various forms of insecure attachment but we wouldn't say love yeah it's it would be, I mean, and in psychology in general, you don't say emotion, you say affect, you know, and again, he, this is something Harlow objected to. And there's right, there's kind of the subtle distinctions, I think, between mood and effect and yeah. emotion. But. but that's the reason we, we do these things. There's always subtle distinctions. There's always a reason why it's better from a clinical point of view to have a specific name that you can define and understand. But in doing so, so the argument goes, um, while labeling provides all of these benefits, it takes away from the fundamental use of language to portray exactly what we perceive. So when we experience love, it's not just attachment. We experience all of the emotional things that go with it, all of the physiognomic things that go with it, all those reactions. And they're all part of the totality of love. And sometimes in psychology, we can break something down so much that we miss many of the important aspects of a phenomenon. And then as the strain of research continues, what they're studying ends up being nothing to do with the original phenomenon. It's just something measurable. Yeah. And even terms like, I mean, of course, it's it's understandable why you might have to break down something as broad as an idea as broad as love, which would encompass kind of romantic love or kind of love for one's parents or one's offspring or what have you. The Greeks had that marvelous uh, topology where they had, you know, eros and um, limerence and agape and all of these different subtypes of love, from mm, love yeah. of God and love of or the gods, I guess. In like the, <laughs> the uh, but I found out again researching this. Like, this is something that I probably had forgotten from my undergrad that again Harlow did lots of experiments and they all generally involved monkeys and depriving them or isolating them in different ways so the the wire mother cloth mother thing sounds pretty cruel but compared to some of his later experiments it's positively benign and he also liked to use evocative terms as we mentioned so he used um, what he called a rape rack in forced mating experiments and he had what, what he referred to as the pit of despair which was for isolation so he would do uh, these experiments where he would leave a monkey in its first few weeks of life physically isolated sometimes in darkness and then he observed exactly what you would imagine that when the monkey was introduced to other monkeys it was profoundly socially disabled permanently so it had anxiety it had withdrawal it had rage it had self-harm monkeys would scratch themselves sometimes try and commit suicide and so it's important to note that this is obviously terrible right to do this is terrible the monkeys experienced all of these things and harlow himself would be the first to say that the animal models were capable of emotion something that not a lot of psychologists might have agreed with at the time but if he's doing these studies and he's using terms like love then he surely has to believe that the animals feel love and feel pain and feel anxiety and feel upset and feel hatred which means that he was inflicting this however his research had tremendous impact on how children are treated to this day in institutional context so just as freud you might disagree with everything freud believed or wrote but his his work had a huge impact in how we deliver therapy and the very fact that we have therapy talking cures uh, similarly harlow's studies led to um, a complete break in the behavioral model that had gone before and they led to new ways of treating depression and neglect and to this day we still have treatments that are being developed new treatments so for example um, for people who have antisocial behavioral disorders what we might what we might have referred to in the past as psychopaths 
Um, there are treatments for teenagers who exhibit these behaviors which involve reattachment. So they're physically uh, in contact with a parental figure for a period of weeks or months and are, are c- taken care of like a baby. And what is believed to occur is that their brain regions um, and protein synthesis, which which occurs, which would have occurred in the early years of life, but was disrupted because of neglect or something like this. And reattachment where it's successful can is one of the few treatments that seems to have any effect for profoundly behaviorally disturbed children, for example. So which is which is, again, you know, introduces the thing like if so much good came from this study, which clearly a series of studies rather was tortuous to the animals involved. I don't think there's any argument for that. Like, was it justified? I don't know. <laughs> Once you get into to research in, in other species, like it, it kind of brings up a whole kind of raft of other kind of ethical conundrums. Um, often, I mean, you'd be dealing with different ethical committees, but there's it, it cuts into different kind of questions around how do we assess the level of distress like in in another species like that can't really directly communicate with us now as, as you say of course like with with primates or or with or with uh you know other mammals like rodents etc you it, there are usually fairly clear uh, behavioral signs of, of distress or uh or other kind of uh emotion kind of st- emotion like kind of states but um there's i suppose there's no kind of really easy answer to it i mean it's, it's kind of it's it's it pro it, it um, posits quite deep kind of philosophical questions about, you know, speciesism or to, to what extent does the suffering of another species, uh, to what extent is that kind of allowable if it benefits our own species? And, and one of the things that I always think about with this stuff is that, I mean, this is awful, right? But but you could go to any slaughterhouse or even a chicken coop and see the same thing. So given that we continue to exploit animals on an industrial scale for food and clothing um and medical research as well um is it so wrong to do so when the benefits are much more clear so you know if a, if a chicken is raised in appalling conditions and then you have it for your dinner i mean you, you didn't materially benefit much more than you would if you'd had a corn lunch but you know this is but this kind of research had profound implications for the treatment of children and stuff so well that's i mean i think at that point we're getting it it's like you're using our kind of our species hypocrisy to justify one particular kind of aspect of using animals for for to a particular end well that's an interesting point i mean is that so is that a weak philosophical position then is that not something you should do and if so why not the point i was making was that we shouldn't use our species hypocrisy about the fact that we also you know exploit animals for perhaps uh, you know for cosmetic reasons even let's say in so maybe in some jurisdictions like and, and use the fact that that happens as a justification for the fact that we use animals in research like i think it should really stand on its own we should just you know take animal research and say does the benefit to our own species or you know our knowledge can that be justifiable uh based on x amount of suffering that 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 may occur to to other species to the extent we we can second guess to what extent there's another species is suffering because if we don't think that way then we're, we're kind of it's kind of like a a sunk cost fallacy well we've already done so much harm we might as well do a bit more <laughs> yeah, maybe it's that kind of fallacy as well yeah yeah so most of the things we've talked about now so far have been things that we would have studied in psychology things that were famously uh uh questioned as to their ethical utility as we mentioned whether it was worth doing or not what we're going to get into now is a series of experiments that are very much more famous outside of psychology and to my experience were never mentioned within psychology um presumably because they were covert illegal at the time that they were done and yet their impact was in some ways just as profound or more profound than the things we've mentioned uh, on geopolitics and and on how war is carried out and uh, so on 
and even on the, the lives of those who were involved um, more so. This is the MK Ultra experiments. You might have heard of them in a conspiratorial sense, but I assure you they weren't a conspiracy other than in the literal sense that they were kept from the public. Uh, they were revealed to the American public through a series of uh, Senate hearings in the early 1970s, but they occurred in America in the, and in Canada in the 1950s and 60s. So do you want to talk, Andrew, a little bit about what MK Ultra was? So essentially this was a series of study studies carried out by uh, the CIA throughout the 1950s and 1960s uh, with a focus on control of, of human behavior. So they were, they, were, they were using kind of a whole raft of different methods, quite, uh, quite experimental methods, to, to try and see if they could uh, have some means of controlling human behavior. So for example, they were giving LSD and then seeing if they could use these kind of these drugs that induce kind of altered states of consciousness, if this could be used as a means of controlling other people. So obviously you can imagine the, the military uh, or counterterrorism kind of implications for this would be would be very big. So you could kind of see the motivation of uh, the CIA in terms of uh, conducting this. But as you can imagine, the um, damage that was kind of done to the, the people who were entered into this uh, was quite... Uh, quite severe. One person, for example, was uh, Ted Kaczynski, or as he's more widely known, the Unabomber, um, was part of a series of experiments which were carried out. And we should say that the MKUltra program was not one experiment carried out in one facility. It was hundreds of experiments carried out by many, many psychologists, over 80 institutions and over 185 private researchers were involved. So this is thousands of experiments over decades very highly funded covertly. And Ted Kaczynski's particular series of experiments were carried out uh, while an undergraduate at Harvard. He was a very, very talented undergraduate and he was studying mathematics, uh, I believe. And his professor, or his sorry, his tutor, was a distinguished psychologist called Henry Murray. And at the time, he was very senior in the American Psychological Association, numerous papers to his name, very well considered. And he carried out this experiment on what he referred to as kind of vulnerable young men. So he would find and befriend young men who were highly academically gifted, but maybe kind of a little bit fragile. Maybe they were um, in the closet because they were gay. Maybe they'd had an abusive childhood, something like this. And he would kind of use this in a very grooming and uh, seductive and unhealthy way to ingratiate himself, become a father figure. And he he, he started, uh, we know from, from the history of Ted Kodinsky and what came out, that he would uh, he would have these chats in his study. So we'd be talking to him about his his private life, his feelings, some really intimate things, and also his uh, theories. So his emerging political theories and so on. Like any young man at university who's you know very intellectually gifted, he had lots of ideas. Some of which were silly, some of which were arrogant. But you know, it's sort of part of the process of growing up that you have these these ideas and then you moderate them as you get older. But what happened in the experiments is that he would be literally strapped into a chair and shown videos of himself um, that had been recorded when he was kind of pontificating about his ideas, read extracts of essays that he'd handed in that he'd been asked to write about his ideas and then he'd be mocked by experts, uh, senior kind of authority figures. Um, There's no evidence that he was ever given LSD and he denied it himself. Whether or not he was is, is hard to say but he was definitely psychologically abused and this wasn't just you know one session, this is hundreds of sessions over a couple of years. Um, So hundreds and hundreds of hours of 
mental abuse. And if you can imagine a particularly skillful bully honing in on exactly what's wrong with you. So let's say you're a child and you've got a limp or bad skin or something and the bully focusing on this physical attribute or some intellectual deficit that they perceive in you. Bullies are often very good at finding that. Imagine that bully is an authority figure, one that you had in a paternal role, so you had an emotional relationship with. And what they're attacking is not just your appearance, but your really basic emotional makeup. And it is widely, now this is something that I find interesting. Um, Kedinsky, as you may or may not know, went on to then have a bombing campaign. He withdrew from society, lived in a cabin in the woods, left academia despite having a tremendous IQ and a postgraduate degree in mathematics and being a professor for a time, he wasn't able to function in the world and he wrote this manifesto attacking technological society. He killed three people and he maimed 25 people. And There's actually a very good uh, series about it uh, called um, Manhunt, the Unabomber on, on Netflix. But it's today, I've, I've looked up, looking into this, l- lots of psychologists seem to poo-poo the link which I find absurd. I mean, this is a very clear making a monster. You're taking someone who was vulnerable and turning them into a killer. I can't see that this would have occurred. His very ideology was formed by this and his the break in his ego that allowed the monstrous behaviours that he, 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 he carried out. It, it comes back to this incident. I'm not particularly familiar with the the case of the Unabomber, but like what, on what grounds were people kind of dismissing the idea that, that it st- goes back to the way he was treated under the MK Ultra? I think there's two main grounds. One is that lots of other people went through this and didn't become the Unabomber or didn't become killers or whatever it was. And um, the other is just the reluctance of the academy in general and the psychological establishment to sufficiently censure people who were involved so when we look at and we'll mention kind of briefly later on um the cia's torture program for example a few people were involved in that that this is in, in iraq and afghanistan a few psychologists and they have been censured officially and they're being kind of legally pursued in the courts and so on but with 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 this particular set of experiments you're talking about hundreds of researchers so and they were the best researchers. They were they went to the you know, quote unquote the top men in the field or whatever. So this was a generation of psychologists who effectively were involved in monstrously pernicious research. And if they were too condemned on an individual basis, it opens the door, yeah, to to any number of people. Yeah, basically every major psychologist today, you know, who's in fifty or sixty, was taught by one of these people when they were an undergraduate. And many of them, you know, would have only retired in the 90s, say, you know. It is interesting, I mean, because as far as, as you say, in, in you said kind of it's not mentioned in psychology, but I mean, you mean in terms of like, you know, our bachelor's degree, I mean, it wasn't something that was really covered very much. I mean, we would, would have done Milgram and Zimbardo, which, but those studies, though obviously very ethically problematic, they were, they were nonetheless within that kind of mainstream university kind of scene, if you like. That's the other difference is that this stuff was done to to try to give the CIA the tools to manipulate people, whether in a Cold War context, whether it be turn an agent, find out the truth, um, manipulate someone into some kind of Manchurian candidate, all of these things and more. Uh, but they're all pernicious. There was no like effort to, ah, yes, we'll break down this person and in doing so, we'll discover the cure for PTSD or something. And quite the opposite. You know, they were trying to, to, to reshape the human being into something less. Uh, than so so it's monstrous even in conception i would venture to say that, that there was probably much more than we know about i mean a lot of this stuff came out but as with any covert program there were probably even more people involved than than we know and um, because anyone who's gonna who can escape 
um, the, 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 the judgment w- will um, and if they're sufficiently powerful they'll be able to do so. So some of the other stuff that happened in the MK Ultra program um, was research on very vulnerable populations like um, prostitutes, like prisoners and another victim of these experiments was the famous Whitey Bulger the um, gangster who later became a crime boss in Boston and is linked to the murders directly um, physically hands-on murders of 19 people um, there's a there's a film called Black Mass where he's portrayed by Johnny Depp in a, in a ludicrous bald head um, it's not as simple as you do terrible things to people they become monsters some people will be more vulnerable Whitey Bulger came from an impoverished background he was already in prison but you can re- you can genuinely ask if something like this would have happened he was given LSD incidentally um, while in prison had volunteered for an experiment but I think it was told he was it was to do with uh, curing schizophrenia or something like this he hadn't been he hadn't been given informed consent and there were some people who had more positive outcomes um, Ken Kesey and Grateful Dead lyricist Robert Hunter also participated in LSD experiments and came out the other side you know creative hippies <laughs> they were the lucky ones yeah some of the uh, participants were even military there were CIA employees military personnel and a lot of it was clandestine so they were kind of taken from the street given a drug and then released onto the street and there's a famous story about a CIA um, officer who was running through the streets after having been given um, LSD and this is not a fun time open your third eye dose of LSDs this is massive what, what, what Terence McKenna referred to as heroic doses of, of LSD enough to give you you know potentially permanent brain damage or at least permanent psychosis and this guy was running through the street terrified that the cars dri- driving around him were full of monsters you alluded to the CIA enhanced uh, interrogation program. This has been quite serious in terms of its, I suppose, sullying the name of uh, psychology in more more recent years. We can say that there was at least two eminent psychologists who who were uh, complicit in this kind of program of, of uh, physical, predominantly psychological uh, torture. So the, these would be uh, Mitchell and, and Jessen. The American Psychological Association has since very much di- distanced themselves from from some of the stuff that was happening uh, to uh, detainees like within the last, I suppose, 15 years. Of course, there was very negative exposure to what was happening around 2004, around the times of Abu Ghraib and so forth. But a lot of uh, accusations were flying around that members of the APA had been involved in terms of trying to tweak some of the rules around what would be allowable in terms of exposure to psychological interventions that could be used to kind of break detainees, which is kind of, it, it is kind of strange when you consider the um, the best evidence would be suggested that, you know, torture isn't really effective in terms of getting useful information for, you know, counter-terrorism efforts or, or military efforts. This torture program, which, as, as you mentioned, there are two psychologists, James Mitchell and John Bruce Jensen, who've been specifically identified as, as contributing to it, uh, in, in some cases hands-on uh, sessions, was carried out at CIA black sites, in other words, illegal and unofficial uh, bases around the world in Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia and so on. And as, as Andrew's mentioned, I mean, everything that we know about torture from a psychological point of view, and it can't be emphasised enough, you know, Trump famously said recently torture works I mean we explicitly know that it doesn't um, as with memory we mentioned in the last episode and uh, when you interrogate someone what you what you get is compliance over time especially a child so you'll get them to say something uh, with torture is the same uh, guilty or innocent you'll get a confession of a sort and you'll get confabulation to whatever extent will end the torture understandably people will lie to save their skin uh, and the, the point being that you can never separate that from the truth there's no objective truth that persists in the brain ultimately you can torture someone to the point where they themselves won't believe the lie that they've 
convince themselves of in order to get you to stop torturing them famously in 1984 there's the you know how many fingers am i holding up winston smith you know and it's eventually he's convinced that it's three not two or whatever it is they should have known in other words so they seem to have done this despite knowing that it wouldn't work just for the money i guess or for the whatever other rewards would come through working with the CIA career reward advancement or... Yeah, well, I, d- I don't want to second guess what exactly the, the, the motivations were. Yeah, but... Um, Evil. <laughs> the American Psychological Association have since, you know, very much distanced themselves from from, from uh, what went on and, and condemned it. It's a popular misconception that the people in, say, Abu Ghraib uh, were, you know, quote-unquote uh, terrorists or the people in uh, Camp, uh, camp uh, X-Ray in... Guantanamo Bay were terrorists or are terrorists but actually very few of them people in the CIA prisons um, were quote-unquote terrorists and many of them have been completely exonerated of any crime you had stuff like position politician in Afghanistan who was opposed to the invasion of Afghanistan and had never had any involvement hands-on in violence wasn't uh, a, a, even a member of a party that was in favor of violence or anything like this uh, this guy um Gulbuddin Hekmartar, I can't pronounce his name, but anyway, uh, who spent years um, suffering under these programs. And we haven't really mentioned what they did, but they created techniques like waterboarding, sleep deprivation, beatings, isolation, the use of deafening music. I famously, yeah, played Metallica at <laughs> Extreme. I can't think of anything worse. I mean, <laughs> some torments are too cruel to imagine. Um, but the really really inhuman stuff uh, stress positions is another one, holding people in positions where they're on a hook um, being suspended or physically holding them in a position where they were being physically injured and, and, and they did become physically injured the idea was that these would be non-lethal uh, uh, procedures but some people in fact not only broke down but physically died um, uh, in, in custody and there's at least one person that has been owned up to but presumably many more passed away during these brutal years of brutal torture uh, supervised by these APA members. We don't have time to completely go into even touch on all of the major areas of um, ethical misbehavior but another major one um, historically has been the treatment of gay people. This is an area that's particularly relevant to uh, applied psychology so say talk therapies or counseling that's offered to LGBT people you know more so than uh, the research as such but uh, this whole area of like homosexual uh, aversion therapy or conversion therapy or it's given multiple names understandably but essentially where, where someone kind of is somewhere kind of within the LGBT plus kind of category and they're being offered a therapy that's going to make them uh, more heterosexual or, or more kind of inclined uh, that way now I'm not, I'm not really an authority on this area but uh, in terms of the, the the research that's been done I mean there's been a lack of any kind of gold standard randomized control trials but you know systematic reviews have, have indicated that any of the, the research that has seemed to suggest that y- you can offer a therapy that will make someone more heterosexual is um, you know it, it's kind of flawed research that will kind of be biased towards showing kind of an effect uh, an effect of, of these kind of therapies so, so even the, from a pragmatic point of view it not only is it obviously dubiously ethical but it's ineffective which is which is kind of as bad so if you're if you're suggesting to someone you can take x treatment and it will quote-unquote fix your problem not only are you saying their, their sexuality is problematic but you're also offering them a quote-unquote a cure that probably won't work almost certainly won't work in fact yeah yeah and so that's yeah that's kind of the 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 other issue as you mentioned uh, is that yeah by by suggesting that someone should be pursuing a therapy for 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 being lgbt you're kind of positing that their sexuality is a a disorder or what have you and i mean the diagnostic and statistical manual uh, of mental disorders which is kind of the the um 
the American Psychiatric Associations in the United States, their kind of their kind of guidebook of various um, of the various mental disorders uh, is uh, has in previous editions it did define homosexuality as a mental disorder. Now it hasn't done that in some time, but uh, this it certainly would have been kind of the mainstream view. Kind of if you go back a certain number of. Uh, editions of that uh, textbook if you will and it's, it's worth pointing out here something which is quite it's controversial to, to say but it's important to mention which is that psychology and psychiatry didn't become tolerant of sexuality specifically homosexuality by some brilliant research finding discovering something or whatever they they as disciplines had the same popular prejudices as the societies in which they emerged and in the case of um, both in fact it took groups of people from within the APA themselves coming to conventions and being like I'm a psychiatrist I'm a psychologist and I myself am gay I'm not sick and taking over with all sorts of theatrics um, in the 1970s or a series of famous interventions where people would kind of bum rush uh, various lectures from um, prominent aversion therapists or so on people who were talking about sexuality and they would they would come out or they would be in disguise sometimes and they would say this is ludicrous it's not a disease um i'm a functional person and i work as a psychotherapist and often they had to do it you know in the closet in disguises but in doing so they successfully changed the consensus by confronting it with their own existence so while a homophobe can look at that and say well look you know as you said the dsm three or two or whatever it was used to call this a disorder and it just was theatrics that it changed you know it took humanity rather than rather than some wonderful uh, research insight to come to this point and but the, the thing to take a step back all research insights as we see with Harlow come from they come from a moment of understanding outside of the research context be it understanding in an emotional sense or understanding in an intellectual sense or an ethical sense so we are I mean a fundamental point here is we're talking about the the ethics of psychology but I mean ethics isn't just an empirical um an empirical endeavor like it comes back to kind of our, our own sense of values and reasoning about about them exactly and the whole person has to come to the evaluation of ethics you can make a rhetorical argument for any position but ultimately often r- rhetoric is used uh, in, a, in a way to sort of isolate the brain or the the the, the type two reasoning mind from the whole person but we exist and deliberate with our whole person and to not bring that to the discussion of ethics or something else is to miss out on humanity and risk becoming literally inhuman in how you consider these things one point i was going to make about the 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 homosexual conversion or whatever you want to call it therapy was that there's a lack of evidence that that it kind of that it works but if you can imagine somebody operating kind of prior to that you can imagine how there would be that temptation to look at that research because uh, if you kind of step outside of the whole politics of how how damaging homophobia has been, you can imagine how how someone would kind of find that an interesting question about whether if you talk about the nature nurture debate and how it wasn't always seen as this false dichotomy, you can imagine how a researcher would be interested in to what extent is human sexuality alterable using cognitive behavioral techniques? You know, can you change it? And you know, you could look at it whether you could make a heterosexual person homosexual, for example, as well. Looking at it as a research question, there will be that kind of temptation to see, well, actually, can can you change it? But then, of course, the ethics comes in, and you have to ask, well, should we look? <laughs> should we look at that? Well, this is this is something that's still pressing to this day. I remember there was a study that came out last week which was looking at genetic markers of transgenderism. And when I saw that, I thought, well, this is so worrying because, you know, for the sake of argument, it's obviously not this simple, but let's say you, came, you could find 10 alleles that 
taken together and when they expressed in a certain order were responsible for 60% of people who are self-identify as being transgender right oh okay what do you then do with that piece of knowledge you have demonstrated that transgenderism is real and innate and people are are not uh, making it up or something but we sort of we've already accepted that as a society but what are you proving really what, what you're doing is you're creating a test right which could then be used later as a, an abortifactant you could say okay, well, we have this test and these genes mean that you will be 80% chance that you'll be transgender or 80% chance that you'll be gay, let's say. That knowledge is then potentially injurious to, to you know anyone who's carrying those genes because they could, at some future point, the law could change to where you, you, know, you need to uh, abort some, a child who ha- has that. Or even, let's say you have a one-child policy. Let's say more nations uh, restrict population the way China has. Okay, you're going to have one child. And your choice is, do you allow this child who's going to be gay to come to terms knowing that they will probably not give you a genetic... This might seem uh, uh, rhetorical, but these things... Well, my point is that these technologies have been misused so many times that it's it's ethically dubious to even research certain things. And that's a whole other program. But, you know, whether whether you should restrict what you learn because of its potential misuses. You know? Heavy, heavy questions. <laughs> but I suppose the thing with um, th- the fact that, you know, uh, homosexuality, for example, was... Um, class as a mental disorder kind of in previous editions of the dsm kind of cuts to the question of with with its own ethical implications of just what is a mental disorder is it just a rare kind of mental state or is one that's damaging is it sufficient if it's damaging to the individual or does it also have to be damaging to society at large or both yeah i suppose it just leads us to to um the the whole issue around kind of neurodiversity or classifying certain mental states if you like as mental disorders we think of the autistic spectrum today say or adhd and so on and there are many controversies justifiably about overdiagnosis or different kinds of diagnosis over time how much these disorders are real or how much um they're just a spectrum um but a positive thing which has come out of that is acknowledging different kinds of things in in the labeling so what i mean by that is in the past where let's say you had somebody who exhibited a set of behaviors that's not normative you have a child that's behaving badly in you without without having these labels without having these identified things to say this person has adhd or autism you're left with just a an ill fit so in a way even the even trying to find names for things allows us to either accept them or treat them and there's a whole conversation to be had about the utility of that even if even if what you're measuring is not as clearly real in let's say in the case of adhd it's very common for people to argue that there's overdiagnosis in the classroom but sometimes even giving things a name can empower you to to change how let's say the classroom environment might work and so on so how does ethics work today andrew you you are actively engaged in research you carry out studies and before you carry out a study you need to get approval from an ethics board what's that process like exactly so um any uh, ethics board so I, I work within university research so any, any ethics board will have a standardized form which you have to kind of complete laying out what exactly you know your research methods are going to be what kind of tests people are going to have to perform but then also including uh, how informed consent is gained for example so you would also attach a, um, a copy of the, the consent form which uh, you will give to, to people. I suppose the idea of informed consent is that people should know what the study is about or what they can expect to do during this study when they partake in the in the, the research that you're performing. 
Uh, as we mentioned before, it's sometimes deception may be necessary, say in, for example, some social psychological research. But if you do want to do that, you need to give a strong justification as to why it's necessary. Now, you know, deception does still happen, and that's... Uh, in studies whereby if you don't withhold some information you won't have valid findings or you won't really be able to show anything. Typically the process is you submit you know your information about the study you're in this standardized form to an ethics committee who review it and then they feed back to you. So typically they'll either approve it or say uh, you need to perform certain amendments. It is possible to to, to reject it although it rarely happens because un- understandably researchers will probably won't submit a research protocol that they understand is probably never going to be proved anyway do you think that has a chilling effect you know we talk about censorship let's say on the internet um, and just just uh, in the last week there's a piece of legislation being passed in the united states which has uh, led uh, sites like reddit to take down all their forums for sex workers because it could be interpreted to mean that any discussion of sex work is promoting sex work and anything which promotes sex work now the the common carrier is liable so the Google or whoever is hosting is liable just even for hosting it. It's, it's a very problematic okay. piece of legislation. I hadn't, hadn't heard of that, but okay. That what's known in, in internet terms as a chilling effect. Okay. So you have the ultimate effect of the legislation, which is to prohibit X, Y, and Z, but there's this general effect, which is to, to prevent discussion at all because discussion is legally dubious or dangerous. So do you think that the, uh, the fact that you just said there so that researchers don't tend to submit stuff that they know would be uh, disapproved of does that or have there been any research ideas or avenues that you would have liked to pursue that you felt like you were non-starters yeah I don't know well I don't know about dis- discussion being censored but certainly in terms of maybe trying to really run a research study where you're ac- you're going to get real people in to who you're potentially exposing to to s- stuff that could be aversive I recall being a one of the groups I worked with were approached by researchers in another country who wanted to study chronic stress in research participants I think essentially they wanted to keep them in the same place, like some facility at the university for, for quite a long period of time. I don't think they were exposing them to anything extremely stressful, but it did have the potential to induce quite chronic stress in the participants who, who would, would be taking part in the proposed study. For a study like that, I mean, obviously it could potentially have useful research impact, but pragmatically, I think given the, the level of harm you could potentially do, at least to some participants, I don't think that would be approved. There are still studies done that do study, for example, acute stress. So one is the Trier Social Stress Test. This was a, a method for looking experimentally at acute stress that was developed in Germany in the early 90s. Uh, so I have, I have been involved in some studies that would look at this uh, in order to, you know, to experimentally study stress. Uh, what it involves is the, the participant uh, has to take part in an interview paradigm where they're asked to imagine they're going to apply for their dream job and they have to make a five-minute presentation in front of a committee. So the committee are, you know, confederates of the, the, the researchers. So I would have, for example, taken part in some of these interview panels. So the person has to kind of get up and give their presentation saying, okay, my dream job is X. And then they have to say what they, why they're the ideal candidate for this job. The interview panel are trained to to not be encouraging. So they're not insulting the person or they're not kind of saying particularly mean things, but they just kind of listen to them and you, they kind of stare fairly stony faced at the person and they don't kind of give any kind of positive reinforcement and such. It's like Dragon's Den. It, it's something like that, yeah. And then the... Um, and if the person kind of stops after a certain amount of time, you, you might ask some questions. So And you might say, you know, well, you, you spoke about this, but I mean, what do you think about... You know, you said X, what do you think about Y and so forth? I mean, it's quite useful in terms of being quite an ecologically valid valid kind of stressor in the sense that, you know, a lot of people who took part in studies might be in their 20s, early 20s, people who, are, who might be kind of doing finishing university degrees and looking for jobs. So, you know, a job interview stressor is something that's quite real for them, even though, even though they're not actually applying for a job here. 
so I mean that's one example of how you know you you can still do research that's potentially quite aversive for people you do debrief people immediately after uh, the study so um, you know you make it clear to them that you know we're you know um, the people were just confederates who were trained to be disencouraging you know everyone asked the the interview panel always act the same way it's not that your ideas were, were silly or what have you do you think psychology has I guess to take the opposite tack of what I was asking earlier has it sufficiently developed safeguards to prevent um, unethical or exploitative research? I, I know people have been cens- censured, for example, for um, doing uh, aversive conditioning of sexuality, for example. And obviously you're talking about all the safeguards there. But given the, the long history of ethically, ethically problematic research, ha- have we developed enough safeguards to prevent future ethical dilemmas and issues? I think there are a lot more safeguards coming in. Increasingly, there's the need to to have a gatekeeper, so someone who might be in a role whereby, say, if the, the researcher is approaching someone to take part in the study, you might have a third party to whom the person can kind of approach or who might particularly in a clinical context, there might be someone that might act as a go-between between the researcher and the potential research participant so that there's less of a sense of pressure for the person to give informed consent to take part. I suppose there's, there's more, you can certainly see more kind of safeguards coming coming uh, into place to kind of prevent people feeling pressurised into taking part in the research. Certainly in research I'm doing at the moment, we have kind of more follow-ups, etc. to kind of that where we can kind of check in on people to, to see if they have had a negative response to studies we're doing. I mean, the study we're do, uh, the study I'm doing at the moment in reminiscence therapy is, uh, I mean, generally we would kind of focus on kind of positive memories, but obviously there is the potential for people to bring up negative stuff. So um, there are those kind of follow-ups of people to kind of check in with them. Do they need to kind of talk through stuff that's come up? You know, say memories we've looked at, etc. The reality is we can never predict exactly how someone's going to respond to a psychological study, like if someone's talking about autobiographical memories, etc. So um, I think there are a lot of safeguards in place. And I think psychology is endeavouring to do as much as, as it can to, to try and safeguard people who do give up, you know, their time and effort to actually, you know, further our knowledge about ourselves. I suppose we'll never really be able to exactly predict how someone will react to uh, to a psychological experiment. The best we can do is to debrief people as best we can to try and have those follow-ups and to try and um, create a space where, where people, you know, feel that they can kind of, uh, they can opt out of research as well. That's It's important with informed consent, as I was saying earlier, that people feel that they can stop the study if, if they feel a study is getting too much for them or what have you. So that's been our discussion. And we'd love to hear what you think. Um, do you think that psychology is doing enough to prevent ethical breaches? Do you think we've abandoned useful avenues of knowledge by becoming so careful in what we study and we would be better to return to the era of Harlow and Milgram? Or do you think, do you have any other feedback of any other kind, um, maybe suggestions about what we should talk about in future episodes or critiques of what we've said today? Do you want to defend the, uh, the the torturers or in some other way comment on the discussion? Please do get in touch. Tweet me at Gareth Stack. Uh, Andrew's on Twitter as well. Yeah, at uh, APAllen1. APAllen1. Easy to remember. Uh, or you can mail us at deadmediumproductions at gmail.com. And let us know what you think or just comment on the website. You can find these episodes if you've just stumbled across this and don't know where to get us on the Dead Medium podcast feed or at my website, garethstack.com. And we really would love to hear from you. And thanks to everyone who's tuned in. We've got a couple few hundred people who have listened to the last few episodes and we really appreciate it. Please do mention it to other people. People are always saying on these podcasts, rate it on the iTunes store. I don't know, go do that if you feel like it. Or don't. Either way, it's your choice. Goodbye. (laughs) 